And at the time, Vegas actually had the highest C-section rate in the country, 40%. So that's almost half of births wow. going in. We're getting C-sections. So a lot of my friends were ending up in C-sections. Wow. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, why is this happening? Uh, so I started doing some research and I found out about doulas and I just really became passionate about spreading that education because research shows when you have a doula present, you're 28% less likely to get a cesarean. Hey, this is Chad Namiro. And I'm Kelly Namiro. Welcome to the Balancing Chaos podcast. A lifestyle podcast where we will interview guests about wellness, business, and just about everything in between. Our goal is to help you develop a lifestyle that promotes health, wholeness, and success. Through our conversations, we hope to inspire you to live a beautiful, full, and joyful life as you navigate balancing the chaos. We hope you enjoy. Elizabeth Sandoz is a wife, mother, birth doula, and prenatal coach, and the host of the Miraculous Mamas podcast. We are so excited to have Elizabeth on today to talk all things pre and postnatal for all of our moms and moms to be out there. So on her podcast, I was a guest and we went and she really goes into depth with a lot of different celebrities and mothers and experts in the field. And so we want to talk about your podcast too, and how you built that. Um, she talks about pregnancy, sex, postpartum depression in a container with zero judgment. And so if you haven't listened to her podcast yet, I highly, highly recommend it. So Elizabeth, can you tell those in our audience who don't know what a doula is? Because I didn't, before I was pregnant the first time, what does a doula do? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. I love talking all of this stuff. Um, so a doula during pregnancy provides informational uh, support to a woman uh, during that pregnancy period. And then during labor and delivery, we provide informational, emotional, and physical support. Uh, we are basically labor experts. Our job is to come alongside you and to be that constant that is there for you. Your Doctors, nurses are in and out. They have other patients. They're doing their mm. job. They're doing it well. Uh, your partner is not a labor expert. So they might be like, what is happening? Is this True. normal? What's going on? <laughs> I don't know what to do to help you. That's where we come in. Um, and it's it's such an amazing job. And a lot of people will mix up doulas and midwives. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not medically trained. I would never provide a cervical exam or give medical advice. So Midwives are highly trained in delivering babies. I am not. I do not deliver babies. I will help you physically. The physical part is doing hip squeezes, labor positions, techniques, things like that. Um, but yeah, we are going to be your constant through uh, pregnancy, labor, and delivery, and then also a little bit postpartum. So at what point do you start engaging with uh, your, your clients? Is it early on in the pregnancy, uh, later on? And then and then the second question is, when did you develop a, a passion for this or, or decide that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, so it's always different when people decide to hire me. I'd say it's usually later on. People are like, mm -hmm. oh, maybe I want to get a doula. And they start learning more about Shit it. Shit gets real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but usually with like second pregnancies or third pregnancies, they hire maybe a little bit quicker depending on their first experience. Sometimes some something went completely different than what they planned. And they're like, oh, I for sure want to do it next time. Um, or like with repeat clients, they text me the picture of their pregnancy test. So like, hey, what are you doing next May? You know, like uh, they'll, they'll get a hold of you right away. Uh, so any point in the journey, but I started to really develop a, a love for it in my early twenties. So my, the first birth I ever saw was a home birth and it was crazy. Like my sister was in labor for hours. Uh, it looked excruciating and I'm like, 
I'm never going to be able to have a baby one day after watching her. Uh, but it was a really cool experience to be a part of. Her midwife was awesome. Her midwife was actually an OB in Venezuela. And then she moved to the States and started her uh, midwifery practice. I actually, in Vegas, that's where I lived. And I know oh, that's where you guys are. I'm outside are, yeah. Chicago now. Yeah. Um, so she was she was in Vegas and uh, it was a great experience. And then a lot of my friends started getting pregnant. And at the time, Vegas actually had the highest C-section rate in the country, 40%. So that's almost half of births wow. going in we're getting c-sections so a lot of my friends were ending up in c-sections wow. i'm like i don't understand like why is this happening uh so i started doing some research and i found out about doulas and i just really became passionate about spreading that education because research shows when you have a doula present you're 28 percent less likely to get a cesarean so and, wow. and it's not just present it's because you've hired one you've done the work you've created a plan you've educated yourself and then you have a, a doula there who's also um empowering you through this so i wanted to be that person i it was i i was that person that was like what am i supposed to do with my life forever right and then yeah. i found this and uh really rolled with it and that was about 10 years ago and then it was really in the last four years that i started doing it full time uh and just falling more and more in love with it and really wanting to dive into that education piece and empowering women and having them have the birth experience that they want. Yeah. And that's just really where I thrive and could talk about this forever. <laughs> I think that so many of like, I, I feel like my birth experiences for the most part were, were pretty good. I loved my doctor, but I feel like I've talked to a lot of friends who had one plan and then it completely transformed. So I just want to go back and rewind for those of, you know, the audience who don't know about doulas, like for you, if somebody brings you on, like right when they get pregnant, does the work that you do with them start then, or does it not really start until they're ready to go into labor and delivery? Uh, well, I, each doula is very different. So okay. if you look at a doula contract, some of them will be, we'll meet together two times prenatally. I'll be at your birth. Then we do two postnatal appointments or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times it's unlimited text, email support, things like that, phone calls during, throughout the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, if you're hiring me on early on, I want to know the type of birth experience that you want, because one of the most important factors for you getting the experience that you want is finding the right provider for that. Uh, there's actually statistics out on different practices. So if you know for sure that you want to have a vaginal unmedicated birth, you're going to want to go with a practice as a low cesarean rate yeah. and supports physiological birth. Mm -hmm. And that might not be your doctor. That doesn't mean that your doctor's not good. It doesn't mean that they're not great at their job, but there are people who focus more on the high risk factors. And then a lot of their, the patients end up being in cesareans because they're looking for any indication like, Ooh, like we better get in there. Yeah. Um, and I help you set up that birth plan as well. So making sure that you have the right provider. And then in that birth plan process, there's things you can do. Uh, if you know, you want a vaginal unmedicated birth, intermittent monitoring is one of those things. I'll just use that as an example. That is key. Research has shown that continual fetal monitoring causes higher C-section rates, but not better fetal outcomes. It's not saving babies. It's just causing higher C-section rates because they're watching the babies, any single dip, they're like, oh, we should do this. But there's such a variation of normal. You're squeezing the baby's head, trying to push them out of a birth canal. Things are going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, 
But that is one thing that if your provider's like, no, we can't do intermittent monitoring, well, then maybe let's look at a different provider that does allow that because that's more likely going to result in the birth plan that you want. Mm. Um, so I actually love it when people hire me early on so that we can really develop that together and that you have you have the best chance of having the birth experience that you want. Oh, I love that. I feel like that's that's so interesting. And I think that so many people are not informed enough on those types of things that like that offices even have cesarean rates or things like that. One question I wanted to follow up with too, before I let Chad get back in here is, um, do you know why Vegas is so high for cesarean rates? Like, I'm just like curious because we live here. Well, the question is what do you contribute the rise to my, my sense is it's a de-risking of the entire process in general. And that there's a lot that goes into that malpractice, et cetera. But right. what do you think's promoting the rise? Yeah. yeah. Um, honestly, I'm not a hundred percent. I remember somebody talking about that before and it, it it's so many different things. Yeah. So the malpractice thing is huge. And that's where it's really hard because it was in the 1990s where there was some hospitals that started banning VBACs. So the vaginal birth after a cesarean, and that made the cesarean rate start to go up. Um, but it was all, some of it was the malpractice stuff. So hospitals had policies saying that if there wasn't an anesthesiologist available at all times, no one was allowed to be back. And some hospitals didn't have access to that kind of stuff. So uh, it's so easy for people to be like, well, like blame OBs or blame different things. It's a whole, it's a whole system issue. It, it's not, do you, do you think OBs want to see 30 patients in one day for 10 minutes. No, they would rather sit with you and, and spend 30 minutes with 10 patients, but that's not how insurance works. That's not how the medical system works. Yeah. Um, and so that that's really hard. You can't like pinpoint one thing as far as Vegas. I'm not sure. I remember several friends being told their babies were too big. And then the babies were born and were like seven pounds. Those, um, those late term ultrasounds are highly inaccurate and yeah. are known for being accurate. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they also, they tell you that the research has shown when you're told that you're going to have a big baby, you're more likely to end up in a C-section fear sets in. And that's real. It shifts your mindset. You're in labor and you're like, man, maybe I can't do this. Maybe whatever. Holy crap. What if I have a 10 pound baby? Those things impact your labor. They impact that energy impacts your experience. Um, so you're more likely to end up in a cesarean as well um, if you're even told that you had a big baby. And there's nothing wrong with having a big baby. There's certain risks that can increase, such as shoulder dystortia, but a six-pound baby can also get stuck. It is higher with bigger babies, but our doctors are awesome at what they do. They know how to help work these babies out. And if they are stuck, guess what? That's when the cesarean can come in. If they're stuck and they're like, wow, the baby's not doing great, really hard to get out, we're going to have to do a cesarean. That's what it's there for right. at that point. Yeah, I mean... Just from a male's perspective, here's what I would say um, going through our two children's birth process. I would say that if you let it, it will be an overly, or in my opinion, an overly medical and clinical process. The medical field, with all due respect, from like what I've generally gathered and the people that we met with, kind of treat it as a surgical procedure, like you're going to get your wisdom teeth out. And I think there, there's a beauty in, in seeing it for what it is, which is a, a potentially the most spiritual, uh, yeah, you know, experience you're going to go through in your life, especially for the moms, but also for the dad. And so I think if you can blend the two worlds of the spirituality of it and and leveraging Western medicine for the safety, uh, that that can be 
that can be wonderful. Totally. But yeah, I, I think a lot of women just do exactly what their doctors said. And it kind of, it makes me sad. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree right. Which is missing out that intuition, that spiritual thing too. Like we are connected to our bodies. Like you're the yeah. only person who lives in your body 24 <clears> seven. <throat> and yeah. we, there is the medical side there, like you said, for a reason, but we also yeah. have autonomy over our bodies and, and the way that we feel that we want to do things that means something. Yeah. And that's where with a lot of the births where people, it's not that maybe they ended up having a C-section or they ended up getting an epidural and they didn't want to. It's, were you heard? Did you feel validated in your experience? Were you just kind of been like, no, we need to do this. Like, was there informed consent? What was happening during this? And that's really the big piece where people end up having birth trauma and regret or feeling like, man, I gave up or I took the easy way out. Um, or I could have gone longer, or this is just not how I pictured it. So there's so many studies that show that when you have not necessarily a doula, but a birthing person with you, yeah, yeah, just something that's there, then you're, you feel more empowered. And then you're more likely to look back on your birth experience as positive, even if it didn't go as you planned it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Our second came out with forceps and like, that was definitely not how I, (laughs) but, um, my was- parents are both OBs. The way they describe forceps to me is that, and if you're unfamiliar for the listeners, they're, man, Big they're salad. effectively like tongs. massive <laughs> salad tongs. And my dad basically said, if you're good, then they're safe and highly effective. If you're not, it can be very dangerous. Yeah. yeah so that's scary. That's why they're not used. But I mean, our doctor knew that you wanted a vaginal birth and it was. Yeah. And he made me feel really comfortable and, and empowered in the decision. He's like, I can do that. Or we can do a, try the vacuum, which is less effective, or we can do a C-section. And so there were like, there were three different options that were presented versus like not having any options yeah. at all. He, so. The way mm-hmm. he described it just anecdotally for the audience, he's like, okay, if you're trying to pick up a bowling ball, do you try to pick it up from the top or do you want to get underneath it and scoop it from the bottom? I'm like, you know, the second one is like, all right, we'll do the forceps. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I don't know if I'd do it again, but um, at any rate, do you think there's any, because my mom used to deliver babies and I saw her waking up at any hour of the night. And, and a lot of these doctors deliver a lot of babies. Do you think, to be honest, there's a convenience factor in this? In C-sections C-section are thing. planned versus whenever, you know, you go into labor. Yeah. I mean, it definitely can be, you do see that. I mean, around the holidays, there's a lot more scheduled inductions because people have holiday plans, um, or scheduling your cesarean. Um, I mean, you, if you're going to have a cesarean, if you're already planning a scheduled one, you're not going to schedule it for Christmas, obviously. Um, but you do see some correlations and I, I have Mm -hmm. heard from people, um, there's not really like research, but anecdotally from people you hear, um, oh, well, my doctor's going out of town. So we're inducing a week earlier. We're scheduling this at this time and things like that. Um, I think there definitely can be, um, but there's not solid research on it. So one of the things that um, we worked with a birthing coach before we had our first, and it was like all about breathing exercises. I wasn't sure yet if I wanted to get an epidural, all of those different things. And one of the things that she had mentioned was like, if you do induction, if you go the Pitocin route, which I actually did do with uh, both of my kids, um, I, because somewhat extenuating circumstances, yeah, but because yeah. of extenuating, it's not like it was like, Oh, I'm just scheduling this because I want 
to go into labor at a scheduled time. Both of them were for a reason. Um, she's like, you're, you know, you're going to extend your labor. Your labor is going to be longer because of that. Do, do you find that that is true or not necessarily? I don't think necessarily, honestly, okay. there can be circumstances where they say if maybe the epidural is given too early, it could slow or stall labor down, but also in labor, there's so many ebbs and flows. And I think that that's something that the medical system doesn't leave room for. They There's this thing called the Friedman's curve where they want to see you dilating so much every so often and your contractions in this beautiful, perfect pattern. That's not real labor. It ebbs and flows. Like you can stall and that's totally normal. Um, if you think about people, or not people, animals, birthing, right? If they're in a safe space, it's going great. But let's say a predator or somebody comes, their labor will stop when they are in fear, their labor will stop and they will move to a safe space and continue. And that's, we're human. If you're not feeling safe or different things that can interfere, even just going to the hospital can interfere. Um, there's machines beeping, there's yeah. a stranger in your room, a nurse that you don't know, uh, lights flicking on and off, whatever it is. So many things can affect our labors. So it's not going to be this perfect, beautiful pattern. What I also have seen with epidurals, so it can slow it sometimes, but it can be used as a tool that actually helps you relax and speeds your labor up. Uh, I've seen a lot of times where somebody's stuck at like seven, eight centimeters or whatever. And it's so hard when you're experiencing this intense pain to relax your body and let it flow through you. You can be extremely tense, that anxiety or other factors could be in there. And I've seen several times getting an epidural, you take an hour nap, you're 10. Oh my gosh, let's go. And yeah. it helps you fully relax and lets your body come finish dilating. And then you're there. So it can really be used as a tool when you're stuck to, to help get you to that next phase as well. That's like exactly what happened with my first. Yeah. You yeah. went from being in highly intense pain to effectively napping. Took a nap. So <laughs> I was sold at that point. Yeah. To be honest, with the epidural, yeah, we like I said, we weren't sure we were going to do it, and but, yeah. it ended up being so the best. <laughs> give us the 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 cons because I think the pros are somewhat obvious. Um, Pain relief, <laughs> yeah, that's the any... huge major one. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that we were talking offline before we got on, and like you had said too, like that was something that you went into your your first right with that with mm -hmm. the thought that you were going to not have one. So there has to be some pros to. And I know them personally, but I don't think a lot of our audience does. What are the pros of not having an epidural? Yeah, well, the epidural, one of them could be it could slow labor. If right. It doesn't work perfectly the same on everybody. Um, so let's say you wanted to do the intermittent monitoring. Now that you're hooked up to an epidural, you have to have continual monitoring. So they are going to be watching that baby, see how they're responding to everything, yeah. which could potentially increase the chances of a cesarean. Um, the epidural can mess with your production of oxytocin because you're not feeling those contractions. And so that hormones being a little bit suppressed and that feel good hormone is a little, gives you a little bit of that birthing high after, not that you don't feel amazing and great either way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes you don't, I didn't at all. I, mine was very traumatic and I don't think because of the epidural though. Um, but it can suppress that oxytocin, which could potentially interfere with breastfeeding and that initial bonding, and also there's really nothing that tells you everything that's in it. We don't know everything that's in it. Um, it could maybe cause baby to be a little bit sleepy, but you don't really see side effects of the baby mostly. Um, there is potential for 
headache. A lot of people end up getting a spinal headache um, that could last a while. Um, there's the, um, itching factor. Sometimes people get super, super itchy. I've been at births where they ended up getting an epidural and I just sat there for hours, scratching their legs, scratching everything. So there can be some like uncomfort or discomfort. Um, and then another con is sometimes it just doesn't work properly and you have an open pocket somewhere where you're just experiencing the pain or all on one side or it's not working for some reason with you. What's really interesting is if you're, if you have red hair, um, redheads are, um, less sensitive to that. Like epidurals work less on redheads. That is so weird. Um, I mean, if you look, if I, that like, I, I'm not making this episode all about myself, but if you look back at like old childhood photos of me my hair was like kind of Auburn. So I don't know if that counts, but my second, my first, it was like, worked like a charm. The second one, I literally could feel everything. And that's why we had to do the forceps because mm. I was in so much pain and he wasn't low enough in the birth canal. Well, and mm. what? I think it was misplaced to be honest. Maybe, yeah. That's what I think. But happened. we planned to place be. it twice. Like it was, a, the epidural thing was a nightmare. So I'm a guy, don't have as much information, of course, but <laughs> what I generally have heard and what seems to be true and a lot of what, what I experienced, a lot of people uh, choosing to not do the epidural is because the drugs essentially go to the baby's brain. And that's like, um, you know, a big downside. Is that, is that fully true? You said they could be sleepy. Is there a clear connection that the, the drugs get into their bloodstream or is it not? Proven? I don't think necessarily. I mean, I think some of it does for sure. Yeah. Um, but I don't know necessarily about like affecting the baby's brain or anything like that. Mm. I'm sure both of us would look at our oldest children and they're smart and don't yeah. seem like there was <laughs> anything going on there. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I honestly don't know like all the research on that. Um, but I mean, if it was something that was causing severe brain things in children, they would find something else to do. They would find, yeah. And they would find a correlation probably. Yeah. 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 Um, what are the other things you help women with when you're developing a birth plan? Epidural is one cesarean is another, like, what are some of the other things just for the audience that you kind of, that you think about help them guide? Uh, yeah. So I always talk about usually on there, the monitoring, um, yeah. the, a lot of it is freedom of movement during labor. So what are the pain methods that you want? I, let's say you don't want to have an epidural. There's a lot of other things that we could do. Um, movement is huge. Having a doula, um, cause we know pressure points and squeezes and different things like that. Uh, what does the hospital offer? Do they have nitrous? Some places have nitrous that can be used. Maybe that's your first line of defense. Maybe you're like, I don't want to get an epidural. Um, or maybe I don't know yet, but I'm going to maybe try nitrous. And if that doesn't help, maybe they have the IV medication uh, that kind of just takes the edge off for a little bit. It does wear off. And there's after a certain point that you can't use it in labor because it can get to the baby a little bit. Mm -hmm. So um, there's different options like that. So it's like, okay, what do you envision for pain relief? Let's figure that out. What does your hospital offer? Um, what does your doctor say? Let's say you want to birth on all fours. Um, I, with my, right when I moved here before my husband and I got married, I went to their OB that their whole family goes to. And I was just asking his doctor, yeah, asking him, I'm like, we're probably going to want to have kids in like a year. Um, and just asking his thoughts on things. And like, do you allow women to birth in different positions? He's like, no, you have to birth on your back. And I was like, all right, this is not the place for me. Um, 
and I found a place where you can birth. However, I labored in the tub most of it. Um, I would talk to your provider too about birthing in different positions when you have an epidural, because the position that they have you in actually narrows the birth canal and it can make it really, really hard. Um, it, with an epidural, you can get in hands and knees. You can do sideline. If they have a squat bar and you are able to use your legs well enough, you could do that. Uh, so most of it's talking to you, seeing how you envision things. And then it's mm. you taking this to your provider, getting their thoughts on it and not asking them, do you allow women to move, to move during labor? like not yes and no questions. How do you feel about movement during labor? What are your views on V-backing? What are, ask them the open-ended questions that make them talk so you can see if you're really a good fit. Um, so I feel like that's birth- a really good tip that you just gave. Like that is gold right there because most people would go in and be like, oh, can I birth like standing what or like on all fours? Like, and then someone says like, yes, but then it's like, you don't really get their values out of that. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to and, and you feel like this loyalty to your provider, right? And yeah. and it's hard to sometimes change, but maybe they've been a For great sure. provider that have helped you to this point, but maybe they're not the person that you want delivering you. And that's okay. It yeah. doesn't, again, doesn't mean that they're not a good doctor. Maybe they're just not the one for you mm-hmm. uh, for that point of your journey. So a lot of it, yeah, is just developing how you envision it, taking these questions to your provider, and then making sure that you have the tools and resources that you need. Um, Even setting up the environment. Like one thing I do, I bring um, candles, music, essential oils, things like that, and just really set up that environment, make it cozy, make it as homey as you can. Um, Make sure you're dimming the lights, talking to your provider about even late in pregnancy, I'd ask them about induction be like, okay, so um, if I go to 41 weeks, what's, what would your plan be? And if they're like, oh no, you can't go to 41 weeks. We're going to induce you during this point. Okay. Why? Like have these conversations. Um, if you know, you for sure want to avoid induction, maybe that's not the provider for you or, Hey, what are your methods of induction? Like just, or what would, what would you constitute the need for induction to be? And, and having those, those just really honest questions and not, being afraid to ask them. Cause I know I've been in the position where I want to even ask my doctor a question. I'm almost too nervous to, Oh yeah. Like, oh, I don't want to ask him. I feel like I'm, it's almost conflict already if I'm asking him this question, which is just not true. Um, so you really have to just advocate and learn to advocate for yourself. And that's kind of what the birth planning process does. I think that a lot of clients of mine, like I work with women and their hormones, as you know, and like so many of us, I think as women, we tend to like avoid conflict, just a lot. It's like kind of a a common thing. Um, and so we can feel really disempowered at the doctor's office. And so I think that what you're doing is like, you're not only like helping them, like you said, like with the physical, but you're also like an advocate for them. Like you're really Mm -hmm. advocating for what their needs are and you're empowering them when they go into an office and and they don't feel as confident as they normally would to ask those types of questions. Are birthing complications really that much more pronounced if you go past uh, 40 weeks? Because I, I think out of all the providers we talked to, none of them had interest in going past was yeah, it 40. It was 40. Like, and then we actually had a provider who we didn't select and will remain anonymous, but he induces all of his uh, uh, patients I was uh, like, really? He's like at 39 weeks. He at 39 weeks, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of problems with, so there was this thing that came out. The reason why they do the 39 weeks is this thing called the ARRIVE trial. The ARRIVE trial 
did inductions on women at 39 weeks and they showed that it resulted in lower cesarean rates. The and and it's really interesting because OBs saw this study and ran with it and used this as an excuse to induce all their patients. But any other medical research that comes out around birthing, like cord clamping and um, the golden hour and things like this have been around forever. Even V-backing, the research has been out for, or not eating and drinking during labor. They say, cause you could vomit and die out of 3 million women <laughs> that happened to one. And it was a medical error. It wasn't even the nurse who did it. There's no reason you should not be allowed to eat and drink during labor with an epidural, without an epidural, anything like that. There's no, there's wow. No, you just busted a huge myth on this podcast. No, there's nothing that supports I was that. starving. Yeah, no, you should have been able to do that. So, um, but that research has been out, but it takes 15 to 20 years for doctors to start to implement medical research when it comes to birthing. With the ARRIVE trial, it happened and they like started like this. They're like, oh, we can induce people at 39 weeks. Let's do it. The thing is when people know that they're under trial, they act and behave in a certain way. All the people that were, all the women that were induced were in their twenties. It was their first kid. Mm. Um, and they had to meet certain criteria they didn't, they only used very specific induction techniques. Um, whereas the providers who are using this all over the country to do it now aren't doing, aren't following these criteria. They're not doing it like that. And it's not also not taking into consideration. What do you want? Yeah. What, how do you want your birth to go? You don't want to get induced. You're, you're not ready at 39 weeks. You don't want to go through having to get a Foley balloon, which is not comfortable, uh, having to get your manually dilate your cervix, like those might not be what you want. Um, and so that it takes a huge part out of it. Um, the risks do go up for stillbirth. So, um, but not very much until after 42 weeks. And then it's after 30, 43 weeks where it really jumps up. So your risk of having a stillbirth, um, I want to say between like what the, what they'll say between like 40 and 42 weeks goes up four times, but it goes from wow. four in 1000 to 16 in 1000. So it depends on how this is presented to you. So when you hear 0 0.04 and 0 0.16, does that, is, is that a huge risk for you? You're the one mm -hmm. who needs to have all the evidence, all the things before you and to help make that decision for yourself. But there's so many things when, when that was implemented, the 42 week rule that we weren't doing like now at 40 weeks, most practices are going to have you do non-stress tests once or twice a week, come in. So they're testing you, the baby making fetal movements. You're, you have to be doing fetal kicks every single day. That's super important. Counting those fetal movements. If you stop feeling them, call your doctor. Like we have different things in place to help prevent that, um, and that could also happen before 40 weeks. Right. So the risks do go up, but you're the person who decides what's the biggest risk for you um, and your baby. And for some people, they might be like, I'm not risking anything. <laughs> Let's yeah. do it. And other people are like, I'd rather wait and see. I'm, I'm comfortable in my pregnancy. Well, you might not be that comfortable at 40 weeks, but <laughs> yeah, I'm okay waiting. Um, and and seeing, and the problem is if your body's not ready, you end up, that's where the C-section rate goes up because in these inductions as well, people are taking into consideration their Bishop score. Their Bishop score is they, they look at your cervix. How did, are you dilated? Are you ripened? All these different things, the consistency. And then if you are prime to 
potentially have an induction, great, but they're doing it on people that are tight and closed. They're not ready. They're not and ready. so that is more likely to have uh, interference. And there's some really cool new research coming out saying that when the last thing to develop in the baby is the lungs. Um, and when the baby's lungs are developed, they actually send out a hormone and release oxytocin that helps you go into labor. And that's some wow. new research coming out that when they're fully ready, that they do that, which is really cool. Um, and it doesn't mean your baby's not going to come out breathing at 40 weeks. They are, but, um, that's just like when they're fully, fully done and we're not robots. Yeah. It's you know, like, we're not, our all bodies are so intuitive. Like mm -hmm. we do not give them enough credit. And we like, I feel like we try to force them and push them into things sometimes. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's just so amazing. Like kind of hearing that, that piece of research, because it just comes back to like everything that I preach all the time. So I love that. I remember a time in my life when springtime would hit and immediately I would be searching for a new trainer or Googling all of the seven day juice cleanse, 14 day detoxes so that I could get myself in shape for summer. And what I didn't realize at this time was that all of that was a complete waste of my time of my energy, of my resources. And I look back on that, just wishing for those hours and all of that energy and brain power back. The decisions that I was making for my body were coming from a place of punishment rather than from a place of love. And it wasn't until I started meditating and I started doing the work, the real work on myself that I recognized that I needed to nourish my body with both movement and food, and mindset work if I ever wanted my body to love me back in a sustainable way. And that's why the WBK membership that I release meditations where I deeply connect you with yourself and blood sugar balancing recipes to nourish you on a cellular level and low impact movement to support the delicate balance of your hormones really gets you the results that you're looking for where it starts to become a lifestyle. It starts to become who you are. I can tell you firsthand that both myself and my members, my private clients, all of us have seen the most incredible results from the WBK method. It's so different than your typical diet and a restrictive approach that we're taught from diet culture from a very early age. As a 33-year-old mom of two, this is the leanest I've ever been the most energy that I've ever had and the best that I have ever felt in my freaking body. And it can be that way for you too. So right now with the code balancing chaos, all one word, B-A-L-A-N-C-I-N-G-C-H-A-O-S, you can get 10% off your annual membership for the WBK method and get new weekly content, plus a library of hundreds of workouts, recipes, meditations with a seven-day reset and a 30-day challenge all to get you started. So use the code Balancing Chaos again, all one word, to start your seven-day free trial and see when you love your body back, how your body starts to love you. One other myth that I want you to bust right now is the idea that having a doula means that you have to have a home birth. And I know you oh, kind yeah. of already talked about that, but I think that there's this big misconception that you're like this woo woo person. If you have a doula. So can you talk to us about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually the last couple of years I was employed by a hospital. Uh, there's one hospital out here that I worked along on a midwife group in one OB at a hospital and they employed four doulas. So it was a really cool experience because I got to at the births, then have conversations with some of the midwives and be like, what would you do in that situation? Or why did you make this call and just kind of learn from them a little bit more, which was awesome and get to know the nursing staff there. And, um, I, I would, even before that, the majority of my births were in a hospital and it's definitely not a woo woo thing. That's what I get told a lot. They're like, Oh, so you only do home birth or you deliver babies at home. I'm like, I don't deliver babies. I don't just do home birth. Um, it's something that, is available to anybody, no matter, even if you want to, let's say your plan is I want to get an epidural. I don't want to feel any pain. And I want these things to follow. Abdullah is so beneficial in those situations. I've been at births where <laughs> things don't go as planned. You want to get the epidural and maybe there's, I, even for me, when I wanted my epidural, I was eight <laughs> or nine centimeters the anesthesiologist was gone. He was stuck in like a crazy birth that was happening. I had to wait over an hour and my doula was rubbing me the entire time, squeezing, like helping me through it. Um, sometimes epidurals don't work, right? Yes. <laughs> like sometimes they don't always work. And then sometimes there's the side effects. There's the itching, the uncomfortable, but with your epidural doulas help you get into different positions. I'm going to make sure you're rotating side to side, helping that baby come down the birth canal. I'm going to make sure that you're still hydrated. I'm going to make sure that you and your partner both have everything that you need. Um, and so there, for me, I love hospital birth because I love being there to make sure that I'm your advocate for you there mm -hmm. and that you're getting all these things that you need. So it's definitely not just a home birth thing, although I absolutely love doing home births too. Um, but I would say that at, at a hospital, it's even more more needed. Yeah, for sure. I think that the medical community could use more of it for sure. So I love that. Based on like your experience with partners, do you feel like most of them are like prepared to, or is it like 50, 50 for like, for what they're about to experience? Cause I don't know for you, for you the first time, I don't know. The birthing or to be a dad <laughs> for the birthing. Oh. I don't know if you were oh. prepared for how intense it got in there the very first time. You're definitely prepared the second time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I probably was on the further end of the spectrum in terms of preparedness uh, when it comes to males. I like read books and then like I, I, I grew up with two OBs as my parents. So, you know, yeah. I think I'd experienced I, I used to go to my dad's surgeries. And so maybe I'm not the best example, but uh, yeah, but like I feel like when I was there pushing for like two hours and two and a half hours, you were like like what's going on here like mm -hmm. you've had two kind of dramatic bursts yeah honest. that's true that, that's truthful um but anyways the most what terrified do you think? i've like, ever do you, been what do you see in the spectrum of partners and also like i feel like a good a good question for the audience would be how like what is a tip that you would give to someone's partner like in terms of how they could be more supportive like would you tell them to go read a book before is there something they can do while they're in the room like what would be helpful mm-hmm um, so I would, so for partners, I've definitely seen the whole range. Okay. Um, and it's for the most part, it's kind of like they want to be there, but they don't know how, yes. like, I'm here for you. I'm not sure exactly how to support you. You got this, but some people struggle with seeing 
the other person in pain. Yeah. Right. Or some people there's weird side effects. Like you get the shakes, you're shaking and it's like, Oh my gosh, is she having a seizure right now? Like what's going on? So having somebody to like, be like, Hey, this is normal. It's okay. Um, is, is nice. Um, but I've, I mean, I've seen guys just sleeping on the couch or like watching a movie while she's screaming. And, uh, I've seen everything or people like just right up in there catching the baby and all of that. So, um, the, the whole spectrum, uh, but my biggest tip of advice would be to take a childbirth education course. That's what I tell everybody to do, whether I don't care if it's Lamaze or the Bradley method or, um, what is, what I, why can't I think of a hypnobirthing, any of those, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do that method, but they're going to teach you the stages of labor, what's normal, what's going to happen. Like when you're around this time dilated, that's when a lot of times these things are happening. Uh, they're going to prepare you for, they even will give you like some exercises, like some hip squeezes or different points. They're going to tell you, get up and pee, uh, every hour that helps create room, your bladder and your uterus are fighting for space or your bladder and the baby's head are fighting for space. So make sure you're peeing, make sure you're staying hydrated. These are things that the partner can do offering you sips in between contractions being like, okay, let's go up, let's go to the bathroom. Let's do a contract there, make sure you're peeing. And like, you're just going to get these good tips to help you through it and learn some things that are going to be normal. Most people really know nothing. Um, and when I look back at like my education growing up, I knew nothing. Like I grew up in Nebraska. I wasn't required to ever even take a sex education course. Like I sure I learned about where babies came from, but I mean, it's nobody pays attention at that point in life. Like you don't know like a lot of what's happening, but the physiological changes, whether you're having a medicated birth or not, there's different stages of labor where different things are going to be happening to your body. Uh, and it's nice to kind of know what's going on in your partner to feel prepared because then they can better help you. All those things for sure. Be agreeable. You're always right. Oh yeah. You know, pretty much, you know, when the moment they come out, that's, you know, what you should subscribe to. One of the things that I think is, is imperative is you're like the biggest advocate in the room. If maybe you don't have a doula in that case of the birth plan, because things can go south or not south, but get off plan very fast when you're in pain, you're not potentially making the most rational decisions. And so I think the partner probably should know the plan and, and be advocating for it. And huh. that totally. that's a big part of it. If you really want to do it a certain way. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. another big tip that like I love and I tell everybody, so whether you're the partner advocating or giving birth um, and they're coming in and wanting to do some sort of intervention, uh, I always use yeah. the, the acronym brain. So you ask, okay, what are the benefits of this? What are the risks? What are the alternatives What is my intuition saying? And what happens if we do nothing? And a lot of times when you're like, what happens if we do nothing? Can we wait? They're like, yeah, we can come back in a couple hours and reassess. And it's like, okay, then why are you coming in all hot saying we need to do this thing? Um, Usually if you're just like, hey, we'd really like a couple more hours to keep going and they let you do it. So um, always ask those questions if they're trying to like, if you're really set on one thing and they're coming in trying to do different interventions. There's a little shaming that happens. Oh, for sure. Uh, Like the happy vaccine when they're born too. There's some shaming. Like you just got to be confident and be educated. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think that we should definitely put that acronym that she just listed off in the show notes. Great. I think that's a great thing for people to be able to take with them. Um. So before we get into 
ask talking to you about your podcast. One of the things that I heard you talking about, I don't know if it was on your own podcast or a podcast that you were on, but when I was doing a little bit of research, um, was that you had an eating disorder at some point. Is mm-hmm. that true? Okay. Yes. Same. Um, and I feel like, at least for me, when I was recovering from that, it was like the greatest source of self-connection. And then mm-hmm. it kind of led me into this career where now I'm helping other people do the same thing. I feel like for you, what you're doing is really connecting women with their own bodies. And so do you feel like kind of going through that maybe and like the healing and recovery of that may have helped you in terms of being more connected to your body and wanting to do this with other women? Yeah, I do. Um, it's because I felt like for a long time, it was definitely a numbing mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. And an escape. And that's how I completely numbed out. And and a big part of that healing was figuring how to nourish myself and then to sit in my feelings and to connect. And it was interesting when I was younger, people would always say like, you're such a nurturing person. You'd be such a good mom, but I never saw it really. I, and I knew I wanted it, but I didn't know if it was because society told me I should, I'm like, do I really want to have kids or is it just, that's what you do next and all of this. Um, but once I really started to reconnect with my body, a lot of crazy things started happening. Like I was such a compassionate kid. I, I would cry if I saw road kill kill on the side of the road. Like I would, my heart would break for everything and everyone. And I was so compassionate, but I'd get teased about it, like from my siblings and stuff. And then my eating disorder happened and I really shut everything down. So when I was in the, this healing process, I just, parts of me really started to break and I just became this super sensitive person. And some of that compassion started coming back. And I'd be like, why am I crying over this thing? Like I numbed out for so long. Like I feel what is happening. (laughs) And, and that, that was a huge part of that connection, like back to my body and nourishing myself and really working on that, that self-love. And I do think that that does pour into this work, um, that, it's you're working with women when their bodies are doing like the craziest things and changing so much. So bringing that, that self-love and that connection to that is so important, but it definitely is something that I didn't struggle with my eating disorder, like postpartum or anything, but I did have a hard time accepting my body. Cause I mean, you, you reach a weight that you've never been in your entire life. Sure. And yeah. then you're like, Oh my gosh. Like you're, you see for me, the weight didn't just drop off after either of mine. And that was a struggle. Cause for my sister, it did like, she yeah. was that person that was like this. Awesome. And I'm like, yeah, wow. <laughs> that was not me. So <sighs> I kind of going through that again, I feel like really helps me like reignited that self-love and, um, and then being able to take that to my clients and letting them know, like, this is a season of life you're in. This is a connecting thing and with your body, with your baby. And, um, it's such a great time to practice grace and self-love and nourishment, not just for your baby. Everyone's focused on the baby, but for yourself. I love taking what you've gone through, even in like the most recent, like your ba- your baby's eight months, like, and being like, okay, like I, how can I help other people with what I've just gone through? I think that that's so powerful. Um, and something that you just mentioned was like the postpartum period for you as a doula, is that something you help them through too? 
Uh, so I, there are postpartum doulas specifically. Uh Um, I don't do that. They will stay at your house with you. Um, get up with the baby in the middle of night, help cook meals, help do laundry, do things like that. Um, I, I don't do that, but part of what I do with my clients is meeting with them postpartum and Uh providing, I usually meet with them a couple of times and then, um, still provide unlimited text, email, phone call support and making sure that they're giving, getting everything that they need. And a lot of times it is referring out then, like if something is coming up, like, Hey, you need to call your provider. Maybe you need to look into this. Uh, maybe you need to call a pelvic floor therapist or, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, just different things that, that I'm not trained in, but I, I have some knowledge about, so I can be like, Hey, maybe look into this this path to make sure that, that you're getting taken care of mentally and physically everything that you need postpartum. One thing I specifically wanted to ask about postpartum is like, what, what are signs that people should look out for like baby blues versus actual postpartum depression? Mm -hmm. So baby blues are definitely a real thing. And this is like such a hard subject because it's, it it can be nuanced with each person um, because we all feel things so differently. And there's Mm -hmm. people who are maybe a little bit more OCD or have some compulsive thoughts already. So maybe having a baby is going to kick that up a little bit higher. But if you, first of all, if you ever have feelings of harming yourself or your child, you need to call somebody like that's the biggest thing. If you ever feel like that, you're past that point of depression and you, you need to call somebody. Um, but the baby blues, it's, it's normal to feel sad. It's normal to even get a little angry. This is probably the least sleep you've ever experienced. Your baby might not be sleeping. You're figuring out how to take care of another human. And that human is figuring out how to live in a world outside of your womb. So you are both figuring things out and trying to learn how to live in this new dynamic. And so you have to remember that about your baby. Your baby's never been alive outside of a womb. Your baby never ate, had to eat. They were just getting everything through the umbilical cord. So they're figuring out how to eat, how to nurse themselves, how to stay alive. And you're learning how to take care of them and to stay alive. Also with your hormones going crazy, also with a different body, um, with on very little sleep. So you might get some postpartum rage. You might be like, man, this really sucks, or this isn't what I thought. Um, you might have some highs and lows and moodiness, and that can happen. Um, but if you, if it, if it is a funk that you're feeling is lasting a little bit longer than it should, um, I would say just talk to somebody. Like, just reach out. Make sure, even if it's like a friend, and be like, hey, like this is how I'm feeling right now. I, I don't know if I should go see somebody. Like, if you're thinking maybe you should, you should do it. And, and it doesn't hurt, even if they're like, no, you don't have postpartum. This is just a new chapter. Even if they're telling you that, at least like you talked to somebody and got evaluated um, because there's there's so much that that goes into it. Like looking back with my first kid, I, I should have seen somebody. I didn't have like the self-harm thoughts, but I couldn't sleep at night. Like I had terrors of somebody breaking into our house and stealing my baby, like constantly, Mm -hmm. like even when she was in the bassinet next to me in bed, I couldn't even sleep on my side. Cause if I turn my back to her, she might be gone. Like, and that was compulsive every single night for weeks. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I probably should have talked to somebody about that. Um, like at like four ish months, it went away. And I'm like, wow, that was, I was struggling and I didn't see it. 
but I also didn't want to tell people because I thought I was crazy. I'm like, yeah, I feel like people, somebody's going to break in the house, but whatever. But it did affect my everyday life. If it's starting to affect the way that you live, if you feel like you can't leave your house, if you feel like obviously daily tasks can be tough, right? How do I get laundry done? How do I do these things? But if it's affecting the way that you live, like you need to talk to somebody. That's really helpful. Um, and I think that, like you said, like we can all feel things so differently. I know with like both of my pregnancies, I felt really sad, like two, three weeks afterwards, um, then it went away. And so mm-hmm. everyone's going to be different in how they experience that. So that's helpful. Do you see any patterns with males? Obviously it's not biological like it is with women, but any patterns like this with males uh, postpartum? Yeah. Uh, male postpartum is depression is actually a really, really? big thing because especially like your first kid, you've never also been responsible for another life. Um, and there's just the different masculine mentality. Like now I have my partner and my kid to provide for, I have to protect them. I have yeah. to watch out for them. So, and your whole dynamic has changed. You're seeing that your partner's going through so much. You might not know how to support, um, you're not having sex during that initial period. So you're not really connecting in that way. And you're trying to figure out how to do, you've only done life with each other. Everything has completely changed your identity. You're a dad. Now you're not just a husband. You're a dad. Like that's huge. So your identity has shifted. Your wife's identity has shifted and your dynamic as a couple has shifted. And it's just something that's not really talked about. So there is, it's like the way I communicate is going to change the way that we interact is going to change. Um, like what I know, like once your kid reaches a certain point, my husband and I are like, Oh my gosh, we have to watch what we say now. She's a parrot. She's repeating everything. I'm like, Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, like it's dynamic, right? (laughs) Things start to shift and your identity has changed. So male postpartum is absolutely a thing. Um, but again, it's something that's like super highly not talked about because they're like, well, you didn't have a baby and you're supposed to be a man. So So, they really cut into your golf game. One thing that (laughs) we, we, we saw a relationship coach, not necessarily because we were having like problems. Just she actually reached out to me because she wants to to be on our podcast. today. Oh, great. Yeah. But one thing she told us that really resonated was she basically said, this will be the hardest period in your marriage, potentially ever the first first year, year the first baby. baby. And that makes all the sense in the world. So there's assumptions that this is not easy but that virtually everyone doesn't go through struggles and and you know pain and and tribulations during this period i would argue that probably almost everyone does so don't feel don't feel alone we certainly did it's challenging yeah um one last doula question so for you know the women out there who have just given birth and when you're doing your like text and email support post, are you kind of giving them any tools after that to help them start to, or to continue to, I guess, take care of themselves after they've had a baby? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some things to set in place. Like that's also part what I do like during is to make sure that you have something set up after, um, in an ideal world, you, wouldn't do much the first three weeks. Like people would be bringing you food. You wouldn't be cooking. You wouldn't be cleaning. You wouldn't do any of that. You'd be focusing on you, your baby. And then there's things that, um, I mean, you're in the fitness world, like breath work, um, and different things like movements, even making sure you're in weird positions. Like if you're breastfeeding, you're like hunched over in a weird thing. Um, and you're getting in and out of bed all day. Like even making sure that you're doing that a certain way 
the movement, the techniques, different things like that are so beneficial if you know some information about it um, beforehand. But postpartum, it is, if I am just texting or calling or emailing with people, um, I think getting a meal train set up is awesome. And don't be afraid to be picky on it. That's the hard thing is because people will, they want to help and they want to bring you something, but they're also just going to bring you whatever. And that's also a time to really nourish yourself. Um, and to not just eat a bunch of greasy food. Um, so you want to be nourishing yourself. Your body is healing. Um, so don't be afraid to like be picky on that. Try to get those things set up and then, um, getting as much help as you can, like with your second kid, you have an older kid <laughs> to look after. So who's taking care of that kid? Who's helping out? Who's uh, making sure that you're napping when the baby naps? Like that's really hard to do with two kids. So who's coming over during that time? Um, we really were meant to do this in a village and in a community, and we're just in a different place in the world right now. So if you have that around you, use it. If you have a friend like that's willing to do that, absolutely. I, I recently just had an experience. I mean, my kid, my youngest is eight months old and a friend just came over a few weeks ago and we've been in like a sleeping hell lately. Something's going on with our two-year-old. It's been bad. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Uh, she was great. Then all of a sudden it was like, she's up every night. So uh, we're with you. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. And then the two-year-old's waking up or the eight month old's still waking up a couple of times a night. So she knows like for two months now, it's just been chaos. And she came over just to like have coffee. We were letting our dogs play and hang out. And she was just like, do you want to go nap right now? Like I'll watch the girls. If you want to go lay down, you can lay down. And that just like meant the world to me. I was, I didn't do it. I'm not a great napper, but I, I was like, that is so kind. Like, that was so nice of you. Like you came over. I thought you were coming over to spend time with me, like to hang out, but you're like, do what you need. Do you need to go nap? Like go take a nap and I'll watch the girls. So if you have those people in your life, take advantage of it. Like if somebody wants to come over and see the baby and you're not comfortable with it, absolutely say no. Like learning to set boundaries. That's something that I text people about like, oh, well, family wants to whatever. And I'm like, put those boundaries up. Like yeah. this is your, your kid. If they're like, Oh, we want to bring you a meal and, and, and see the baby. Oh, you know, right now we're still bonding together as a family, but if you'd love to leave a meal at the door, we would absolutely love that. And we'll let you know when we're ready for people to, to come over. And, and it's okay to say that that's not the confrontation, right? Like we said before, for some reason, as women, a lot of times we see everything as confrontation, like, yeah. Oh, I don't want to have confrontation with this person. That's not confrontation. You're just setting yeah. boundaries. You're protecting your space and your family. And that's so important. I love that. And the way like it, you phrasing it like that and helping them for like, it's a simple shift in like the way that somebody might say something or respond back, but it makes all the difference in it, making it not feel like conflict and just be like, Oh, we're bonding with our baby. Like anyone could understand that. And like that right. makes it feel less scary to say. So mm -hmm. I love that. Um, so talk to us about starting your podcast, what that was like, you have been going for a while now. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really impressive to have seen like all the roster of people who you've had on. So, um, what was that like? Like, how did you make the decision to start? And, um, did you already have an Instagram following before you started that podcast? Um, so the podcast originally, we started with three people and it was just kind of going to be like, a mommy podcast, but I feel like we kind of had three different visions of how it was going to be. And so we podcasted together for a year and I'm really passionate about the educational 
part of it. So uh, when we branched off, I continued with education and growing it that way and really wanting to bring on experts from fertility, trying to conceive, parenting, um, and touching on everything in between. And just so people know options of different things. I've even talked with people that I don't necessarily agree with everything that they that they believe or do, but I think that that's good that you can have those conversations and present that information. And there's not one way for everybody. Um, so I'm, I love that. I love getting to talk to people on the podcast. Like I'm, I'm sure you guys do too. You just ha- get to have cool conversations. You learn things, uh, and, and you get to help people learn and grow and be a part of that. And so, um, yeah, it was really important to me to just empower and educate people. So bringing on experts, people who are passionate about what they do and wanting to share that information. Um, and then also fun people. Yeah. I've had some like celebrity guests on there and just have some like fun, whatever podcasts where you just get to talk with people and ask them, like maybe get questions from the community and ask them that as well. Um, but it really is a passion of mine. It's been a labor of love <laughs> sometimes, but it's, it, it is definitely, um, a, a big passion. I feel like you asked another question in there, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, did you have your Instagram following before? Oh, before? so I did have a, a small Instagram following before. Um, but I'm, it's interesting how it's shifted because the following that I had was actually, so I was on the bachelor a long time ago. <laughs> so that's I didn't like know where if you people... were going to want to talk about that. So <laughs> it's whatever. So that, so most of the people follow me were through that. So like, I feel like along the way, I've definitely like lost people because I have nothing to do with the bachelor world anymore yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and don't care about it at all. Um, and so now it's more people who are interested in what I'm doing. So yeah. that's like been cool that I'm like, okay, now people who really want to learn about this stuff are coming along. Um, and not here for anything else. Cause I don't really post anything. Yeah. They're there for you and like what you're teaching. Yeah. Them, which is amazing. right. Exactly. I love it. I think one thing that I could gather from, from the guests you've had is you are willing to have a healthy discourse. Like you mentioned with people that may not totally agree with you. And I think uh, that's the most beneficial thing you can do when you're podcasting is you don't just bring people on that share your same opinions. You bring people on that might have very different opinions. Yeah. And then you have a, respectful conversation conversation around it and so i think that's what makes things very interesting and kind of unmanipulated if there's any advice you could give to someone who is starting to trying to start either an instagram or a podcast because um i mean i think that a lot of people out there are trying to give it a go would you what would your tips be like this is the you know besides being a doula these are the businesses that you've built and they're impressive Yeah. Um, I think that being consistent is huge. Um, if you like, let's say you don't have a a following and you're trying to start a podcast, um, putting out consistent content, if you're and whether that consistent content is, let's say you don't have time to podcast all the time right now, but you're like, Hey, every, maybe it is once a week, or maybe it is, Hey, the first Monday of the month, I drop this information, I drop this, whatever, and you're building slow. Um, but people are then are going to look for that. So if you're somebody who's always having this thing on this day and then you don't have time that week and then you forget the next week, um, that's hard for people to follow along with. So being consistent, I think is really important and being genuine, being true to who you are with the Instagram stuff. Cause it's, 
honestly, I wish I didn't have an Instagram most of the time. Like <laughs> I, I'm like, I wish that there was no social media because I just, I'll lose time on there sometimes. Um, but it, it, it can be so key in sharing that information and it can be awesome to even build relationships with people, build community, um, and to share. So showing up there, being genuine to who you are. Uh, cause I know that I struggled with that. Like I used to make some videos and my husband would be like, you talk in your videos, not how you talk in real life. You're like, totally, hey. <laughs> totally. Right. Right. And I'm like, I don't know like how else to do it. It's hard to be like, Hey, what up? Like, here's the info on like V bags or whatever. I'm like, so if you're interested in having a V bag and my husband's like, that's not how you talk. And so really trying to find, like be true to who you are. Um, and you have to do, it's about something that you care about and that you're passionate about. Um, if you're doing it, if you're like, I'm going to start a podcast, I'm going to start an Instagram just so I can make money. Then you're already in it for the wrong reasons because it's you're not helping people. Right. Like, and you're not just going to start making money on it. Like you really really have to work. (laughs) Right. Right. You have to build, build. And you, like, even now I'm trying to find different ways to build and expand. And, and I am working on some, some really exciting stuff, but it's, it's hard. And so you have to have the passion and the drive because most people do drop out pretty quickly. Yeah. What on the, uh, note of technology. How do you, how do you approach technology raising two kids? You know, do you have any like hard and fast rules around either like how you engage with technology around them or even how they engage with technology because it's a struggle. TVs are totally so effective and, uh, we don't use it often, but no, man, they help. (laughs) It's the truth. They help so much. And like, it's the one thing that locks them in. But even like for myself, if like we flip the script of, of boundaries. Right. And it's like, for me, like, I know that there was a time in my career where I was literally like on Instagram, like multiple, multiple times a day where, and now I've said it, I'm on there twice a day, 30 minutes each that includes putting content in and looking at other people's content. So I'm not spending more than an hour a day on that platform because otherwise like I'm not present with my kids. And so I think that goes both ways. It's for them. And for us, there has to be boundaries in both areas. Don't steal the mm-hmm. floor. I asked her the question. No, I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> I want her to answer with respect to both. Yes. Yeah, how, do you, yes. how do you do it? How do you manage um, it? So I do have like time limits set on my Instagram. And um, it's something that honestly I continually struggle with. And I, my husband and I have had this conversation a lot too um, of just like, we really have to make intentional time of being with the kids because first of all, they notice that. And then it's also the monkey see monkey do. So if it's like, well, you always have a screen in your face. Why can't I? And we want to show them that that's not how we want to go about our day. And, um, so my kids don't have iPads. Um, we have one in our house that usually I'm the one who will like, if my husband's home and doing something like I'll listen to a podcast or I'll watch something while I'm cooking dinner, um, maybe, uh, but it's the only time that my daughter ever uses it. Cause I'm trying to figure out a better way to do it. Cause I'm home by myself is when I put my youngest daughter down for a nap in the morning. Um, I yeah. let her sit out. She sits in my, I like shut the gate to upstairs. She sits in my room usually watches like frozen or tangled, like puts it on. I put the baby down, then I come out and we immediately turn it off and we go downstairs. Um, I don't like the idea of holding a screen in your face. Mine's more also just the protective measures. There's been so much research about the access that pedophiles have when kids get on different apps and different things like that. And, um, that's more like 
what I'm concerned about too, um, when it comes to different things like that, as they get older and then they're used to this, um, to having access to it all the time. I mean, there's been so many stories about kids who use Roblox. I think that's what it's called, um, and different things like that. Um, so setting up those boundaries now is really important because it's not like, oh, all of a sudden you're older now you can't have it or you can't do it. Does she throw a tantrum when you, when you take it away after she's She done? actually doesn't. No, she knows like that I go in and it's done, but we do use the TV. So we have the TV yeah. in the living room and especially if my husband's not home from work yet and I'm making dinner, the TV is on. Like it's, that's what it's we, on. He, our son doesn't have an iPad either. Um, but like if we turn off the TV and it's like time to go to bed, it's like, I want more TV. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> she's getting to the phase where she's like, watch a movie, watch a movie, watch a movie. And there are days where it's hard and I struggle (laughs) and I'm like, I have to get podcast work done. And I've tried doing it like without, but then she's like trying to get on my computer. Like I'll set her up with games or books and it's like, okay, I got to put on a show while I send this email and do this thing. So, I mean, we definitely do use it. There's days where I use it a lot more than I want to. Um, But I think what's really important is not making it the key thing. And then also trying to get outside with your kids every single day. And then it's at least setting intentional time with them. Um, yeah, it's important. Everyone talks about the negatives and we all know them around technology, but there's a lot of positives too. He learned West, our two-year-old learned exponential amount of his vocabulary from watching. Oh, totally. Blippy to be honest Uh (laughs) and others, but it, it, He's very smart and he developed a lot of his sentencing and his vocabulary and his vernacular. Um, find any video for you now. <laughs> yeah, he knows how to, it's, it's unbelievable actually, like for, for those that maybe don't have a two-year-old, like, or at least he has figured out how to scroll. He calls YouTube the red button. <laughs> so like he's he's highly aware i mean he's gonna get face id uploaded soon here it's yeah wild. yeah i also think that i mean there was there's been times where i'm like is she watching too much tv and i'm like she has such an extensive vocabulary my two-year-old is so yeah. smart and i'm like well we have to be doing something right at some point yeah. but then they they learn funny phrases from movies and sometimes it's hilarious when they repeat i'm like she loves sing too mm-hmm. and so like when she drops oh, yeah. something she'll be like oops a daisy because that's like what the girl <laughs> says in there and you know they just learn different things yeah um so for just like to wrap things up I think that um we kind of talked about how self-connected you are what are a few things that you do because you're a mom you're podcasting you're a doula like you're taking care of everybody else what are a few things that you do to take care of yourself every day I feel like my focus right now on taking care of myself is reducing stress and increasing nourishment um, because it's so easy. I was in the phase for a really long time that I would get up, get the kids food. And then it's like 11 o'clock and you realize all you ate was like your kid's toast crust, (laughs) you know, the crust off their toast or whatever. So, um, trying to take intentional time for myself, um, waking up, making sure I'm eating breakfast, that I'm getting nourishment, that I'm hydrating and eating before I have coffee. Um, and then making sure that I'm staying fueled throughout the day. And, um, one thing that really, I really like is once I put the girls to bed, leaving my phone upstairs. And then I come downstairs and my husband and I hang out and it's just like, not something that I'm on. Um, but like, if you're talking like bigger ways, no, I love that. I, I think that that's so important. Like this, the 
connection with your partner and like not being on the phone at night like that's huge it's like a critical hour if you're lucky 45 minutes like when they're in bed and you finally get to have some some one-on-one time with your your partner yeah Mm -hmm. right well and my husband wakes up at like five for work so he goes to bed early and so we want that time together and we realize we're like when we're both sitting there on our phones or doing that's not fun that's not connecting um and we miss each other during the day like we want to hang out we want to spend time together and be intentional about it so um i would like to just by dinner time put my phone away right and have that family time and be with kids i just i'm not good at it yet but that would be nice (laughs) no it. one is perfect no one is perfect that's but one it's thing. funny everyone has the same recommendations all the people we've had in the pod it's usually uh sleep away from your phone don't don't interact with it the first hour of waking up yeah. or, or really the last two hours or whatever it is before going to bed it's like such mm-hmm. a common denominator in terms of the advice so was it somebody i heard on your podcast because i started doing this and i really like it too um taking 10 big deep breaths yes every day so i've been going outside in the morning just like walking out back and just just taking 10 big deep breaths and starting my day that way and i feel like that's made a huge difference it doesn't like that was gary brecca who was on our podcast a cold plunge and it's just gonna send it over the edge oh i would love to do that um but i feel like it doesn't feel like like meditation for some people sounds like this huge commitment and 10 mm-hmm. deep breaths is like that's not a huge commitment everyone can do that right. we can mm-hmm. all do 10 deep breaths so i love that you you're doing that that's awesome that's um, fun. thank yeah. you so much for being with us and for yeah thank you so much for having me this was so much fun all your advice um we will put all of your information in the show notes but tell everyone where they can find you yeah, I'm on Instagram at eSandos. And then my website's miraculousmamas.com. And so you can reach out to me, either one of those. I always check my DMs if you have any questions. Um, I love talking about this stuff with people. I, I have people reach out to me with different questions about their birth plan, and I love talking about it. So make sure that you either email me through my website or check me out on Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We really hope that you enjoyed that episode. You can follow me on Instagram at Wellness by Kelly. And if you're new around here, you can sign up for the WBK seven day free trial where you can get access to all of my low impact workouts, blood sugar balancing, plant-based recipes, and guided meditations all available on wellnessbykelly.com and on the WBK app. Hey, thanks for listening. Please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also connect with us on social media at Wellness by Kelly. Drop us a DM for who you want to hear from.